God goes after the heart. We just sang, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. And just last Sunday, kids, you guys talked about how Samuel went to anoint the new king in 1 Samuel 16. He saw David's older brothers who were handsome and tall and strong. But God didn't want them to be king. He told Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so God had Samuel anoint the youngest, the scrawniest, David, who was later described after, as a man after God's own heart. And kids, uh, today you're going to dive in and look at um, David and Goliath and, and see David step up and be the king uh, that God had called him to be. So with that, kids, you are dismissed off to your classes. I know some of you thought I forgot, but that was intentional. Like it was planned. So, yes, God looks at the heart and wants to see what's going on in the heart. But more than just caring about what is on the inside, God pursues what is on the inside. The Hebrew word hesed is all over the Psalms. It's a difficult word word to translate, but it's most often translated as steadfast love. So whenever you're reading through the Psalms and you see this word steadfast love, that's the Hebrew word hesed. But it, it can also be translated as mercy or relentless pursuit. The word captures how God never gives up on us. Um, he continues to come after us. So in Psalm 23, 6, when it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. What that's saying uh, right there, that the word mercy is the word hesed in Hebrew. And so it's saying that this goodness, this steadfast love, this mercy will continue to come after me. It will never give up on me. This relentless pursuit shall follow me all the days of my life. God never gives up. He pursues. God goes after the heart. Abraham. God helped Abraham see that his faith lies not in his son Isaac, but in the God who provided Isaac in the first place. God goes after the heart of David, drawing him back after his grievous sin. God goes after the heart of Jonah, reminding him of his calling and giving him a second chance. God goes after the heart of Peter, who needed correcting time after time after time. God goes after my heart. Back in my early 20s, I had these grand dreams of of being the next Stephen Curtis Chapman, of being the next musician that was up on stages and touring around the country. And I had, I had great motives behind it. Oh, I was going to use my music to, to share God's love with the world and, and write all these amazing songs so that people could come up to me and tell me, Ben, like, you're just such a great writer and such a great artist. It didn't happen, clearly. I mean, I'm standing right here. But God very clearly directed me away from that 
and said, Ben, I know what your heart is. And you've got selfish motives behind that. And we're going to guide and direct you away from that. Many of you know I'm, I, I, I love playing disc golf. Uh, it's, it's, ah, I love it. And there was, there was a season of time where I started playing tournaments and was like, this is it, you know, like, I'm going to start playing tournaments and yeah, sure, I'm going to be out there and, you know, have good conversations with people, but really I'm out there to win so that people can come up to me and go, Ben, like, wow, that's great. Look at you. Look at you playing disc golf. Look at you doing so well. And boy, every time I signed up for a tournament and played, I did awful, absolutely awful. And I was God just going, Ben, I know where your heart is at. You need some steering and you need some directing. Your heart is focused on the wrong thing, Ben. I need to guide you and point you this direction. Doesn't it feel like this sometimes? Yeah, I've got a plan. And God goes, uh-uh, <laughs> that's not it at all. We're going to go this way and then this way and this way and this way. And God has a different idea than us. I have a plan or an idea how things should be, and God has something completely different in mind. And though this gives us a good visual, I feel like the Bible says it better. Proverbs 21, 1-2, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. We have our ideas, but God sees through that and gets at the heart. He guides and directs us wherever he will. But it's always good. And it's always with purpose. And he is pursuing and seeing things that we aren't. God goes after the heart. Open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 37. But before we get there, I wanted to go back and give us some context. Angel spoke last week on Jesus sending out the 72 disciples, and I just wanted to point out a couple things from this passage. So starting in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. How cool is that? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see him going after the heart? Sure, they're excited about the external, about what's happening, but Jesus points them back to what really matters. And then we read on a little bit. Look at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then jump down to 23. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
See here, Jesus points to the importance and value of humility. He's going after the heart again. His message is for those that are ready to receive with a right heart. So we have Jesus going after the heart and praising a humble attitude. With that, let's read our passage for this morning. But let's stand together in honor of God's word as we read. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Lord, this morning, as we dive into your word, we're thankful that you are after our hearts. God, that our hearts sit in your hands. God, you direct our hearts uh, like a stream of water wherever we need to go. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you help us be attentive to where you have us going. God, you help us to listen to what you want to say. Because we've got our ideas and we've got our plans. But, God, you've got something even better and even greater for us. So help us be listening and attentive to that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. God is after the heart. So first, let's look at the heart of the law. If you want to follow along uh, in your bulletin, there's a handout and there's blanks to fill in. Uh, Some of you like filling in blanks. So here's your first blank, the heart of the law. So here, as we just saw, Jesus had been privately talking to his disciples. And then a lawyer jumps in. Now, in those days, lawyers weren't experts on civil law, but rather they were experts of biblical law. So this guy was an expert on the Hebrew scriptures, especially the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. He had probably memorized at least the entire Torah. So we're talking Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized the whole thing, and probably memorized other chunks of scripture. 
And he was also a part of the Jewish elite. Uh, so he was among the scribes and the Pharisees. So when we talk about this lawyer, we're talking about Jewish elite, a guy that knows the scripture and knows it really, really well. So here he kind of jumps into the conversation. Maybe he was eavesdropping. Maybe he was in a crowd that had gathered around Jesus. Or maybe he had been looking for Jesus. We don't know. We don't know how he popped up. But we know that he had an objective. And his objective was to put Jesus to the test. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers had already been at this. We see in Luke 6, 7, it says, And the scribes and Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So they're already at this. They're already trying to hound him and test him and and see what he's all about. And here again, this lawyer is looking to trip up Jesus to see if he'll say something wrong. Now, there's a structure in this conversation, and it repeats. And so we've got two interactions that kind of follow the same pattern. Here, this first one around the law, and then another one around the neighbor. And the structure is this. First, we see the lawyer's motive. Then we see the lawyer's question. Then we have Jesus' response and counter-question. Then we have the lawyer's answer. And finally, we have Jesus' imperative. So we're going to walk through that as we look at the heart of the law and then later as we look at uh, the parable that Jesus tells. So first, we already talked about the lawyer's motive. The lawyer's motive is to test Jesus. Now, let's take a look at his question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is based on a Jewish understanding of the law. If you want to flip over to Deuteronomy 6, you're welcome to keep your finger in Luke, but in Deuteronomy 6, it says this in verses 24 and 25. It says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So here it very clearly shows, if you keep the commandments, you will live. So that's this lawyer's mindset. He knew that if you obeyed, you would have eternal life. But there's a fatal flaw with the question. There is nothing that he can do to inherit eternal life. Nothing. Sure, the answer that the lawyer gives is correct, and that's what it takes to have eternal life, but it's an impossible task. But remember his motive. He's not out to understand. He's out to test Jesus. He's wanting to see how well Jesus knows the law. But then we see Jesus' response and counter-question. See, Jesus knows the lawyer's heart. And so he puts the question back to the lawyer. He even invites the lawyer's interpretation. He says, what what does the law say? How do you interpret it? And the lawyer nails it. He answers really, really well. Now, half of his response was pretty easy for him to pick out. He answers with the Shema, which is tattooed on my arm. But also, uh, it is uh, out of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which says, 
Hear, O Israel. And that word hear is the word shema in Hebrew, which means listen, pay attention, take note of this, dial in. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, why this was an easy part of the answer for the lawyer? Well, because this was said daily. Listen to what Deuteronomy says about this commandment. Starting in verse 6, Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And a lot of Jews took some of this very literally. They would walk around with a little box tied to their wrist that contained the words of the Shema in this little box. Or they would have it posted on their door and they would touch it every time they went in, every time they went out. And so this was so paramount, so huge, so big that it was an easy answer for the lawyer. Well, how, what do I have to do? Well, you better do the Shema at least. Like he understood that. He got that. Now, let me point out a couple things about the Shema. First of all, the you is an individual you. It's not a corporate you. It's singular, not plural. When it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, it's talking to individuals. It's not talking to the group as a whole. You shall love the Lord your God. Each of you individually. Put your name in there. And you, Ben, shall love the Lord your God, Ben, with all of your heart, Ben, and with all of your soul. It's individual. Also, uh, this list that's given isn't a compartmentalized list, but rather it's building a holistic picture. It's not saying, love him with your heart, and then when you're done doing that, you can stop doing that, and then, by the way, over here, love him with your soul, and then love him with your might. No, it's saying love him with your heart, with your soul, with your might. It's almost like as if they're being bled together. Because this whole concept is just about loving him with everything you have. In fact, uh, it's translated differently on different occasions. And, and I'll get into the why in just a minute. But here in Deuteronomy, it's translated love him with your heart, with your soul, with your might. In Luke, we read heart, soul, strength, and mind. Uh, in Matthew, it's written... Uh, written as heart, soul, and mind. And in Mark, it's written heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, the first two words in Hebrew around there, love them with your heart and with your soul, are clearer words. But that third word, love them with your strength, with your might, is a harder word to really kind of put into English. It's the word muod. You're getting a little bit of uh, Hebrew today. Isn't that fun? It's the word muod, which means very or exceedingly. So what it's literally saying is, love him with your veriness. Love him with your exceedingness. So what it's saying is, love him with everything you got, and then you're not done. Keep going. Continue to love him with everything that you have. And so that's why it's translated differently different times. But that also points back to this holistic idea. Love him with everything that you've got. 
So that was the easy part that the lawyer included. Okay, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a commandment out of Leviticus 19. Now, both Matthew and Mark record Jesus saying the same thing as a response to the question, what is the greatest commandment? And the scenarios in Matthew and Mark are different enough from the one in Luke uh, that it's reasonable to believe that these were separate encounters. So maybe the lawyer had overheard Jesus saying that and goes, oh, I I know the answer because Jesus said it earlier. But maybe this was his own interpretation. But either way, he answers well. Jesus says so. He says, you've answered correctly. He gets to the heart of the law. So that was the lawyer's response. But now let's look at Jesus' imperative. Jesus' imperative is in verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law wasn't for us to go and do it and earn God's favor. Rather, the purpose of the law was for us to see how horribly short of God's mark we come. How desperately we need him. The law should do nothing more than drive us to our knees. But Jesus tells the lawyer to do this. To do the impossible. It's as if I said, Lord, how do I escape the uh, advancing horde? Oh, jump over the Grand Canyon and you shall live. Yeah, got it. Not going to happen. He puts the impossible in front of him. So why does Jesus respond this way? Why does Jesus give him an impossible task? Well, he's going after the heart of the lawyer. He knows that the lawyer knows how impossible this task is. The lawyer's response gives us a hint of that which is coming up. But Jesus is taking an interaction that was meant for evil, putting Jesus to the test, meant to trap him, and he uses it for good. Now, lest we put ourselves above the lawyer, stop for a second. When have you come and put Jesus to the test? When have you challenged him? You may not think of it that way, but have you ever said, God, if you really love me, you will do this and this and this. Or, God, why aren't you answering this prayer? I thought you loved me. When life throws you a curveball and you turn your anger towards God, you could very well be putting him to the test. But how many times has he taken a situation like that in your life and used it for good? How many times has he pointed you to, toward a better that you didn't expect? And if he's done it before, isn't he doing that again and again and again? Okay, so Jesus gives him an impossible 
imperative. So does that mean we shouldn't try? Quite the contrary. We are to strive for this with everything we have, to love God with our everything. But the difference between how we approach this and how the lawyer might approach this is that we know we won't succeed. We know we will need God's grace as we try to live this out. So the credit goes back to God, not us for our success. But when the lawyer hears the impossible task laid out, he goes about tackling the issue another way. He tries to make the task a little easier. Again, this interaction, as we look at verses 29 through uh, 37, this interaction has the same structure as the last. It starts with uh, the lawyer's motive, and then we'll see the lawyer's question, and then we'll see Jesus' response and counter-question, and then uh, the lawyer's answer and Jesus' imperative. So we're going to walk through this part that way as well. First, the lawyer's motive. The lawyer knows he's failing, which is why he tries to justify himself. Think about it. We do that sometimes. Well, let me tell you why I haven't turned in that paper. I know I should have turned in the paper, but let me try to justify myself. Let me tell you why I haven't finished that project. I know I should have been done already, but let me try to justify myself. You see? We're trying to justify our failings when we say stuff like that, just like the lawyer is doing. He's trying to reduce the number of people he needs to love by qualifying who his neighbor actually is. And then he asks a question, and who is my neighbor? Now, the lawyer's question about who his neighbor is came from a different understanding of who a neighbor was. Now, remember, he's memorized the Torah. Okay, so let me read out of Leviticus chapter 19. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That last part should have sounded familiar, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. But do you see what qualifies a neighbor in this passage? Your brother, uh, the sons of your own people. See, in his mind, neighbors were people that you knew. Neighbors were people that you were related to or people of your own kind. Those are my neighbors. That's who I should be loving. Let me read also out of Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34. It says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it also puts in this camp of neighbor, the sojourning stranger. But what exactly does that mean? What's a sojourning stranger? During the time of Jesus, the Jews uh, were occupied by Rome. Were the Romans sojourning strangers? There were also Gentiles that lived uh, in areas right around them. Are the Gentiles sojourning strangers? What about Samaritans? Well, the history of the Samaritans uh, differs based on the source. They might have been a group exiled from Israel that returned from Assyria, so they could have been Jewish, or they could have been a group of Assyrians that settled there and merged parts of Judaism uh, with their own polytheism. Um, So we're not really clear on how the Samaritans came about. 
But there's some big differences between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, They only regard the Torah as scripture, so only the first five books of the Old Testament. They also regard Mount Gerizim as sacred instead of Jerusalem. And they were regarded by Jews as neither fully Gentile or fully Jewish, the Samaritans. Now, they talk about there's a common heritage. Uh, In John 4, 12, it talks about our father Jacob. But they're seen as foreigners. In Luke 17, 18, the Samaritan that Jesus calls a foreigner was the one leper that thanked Jesus for healing him. All that to say, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Jews avoided walking through Samaria as they would go between the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem. Jews weren't allowed to interact with Samaritans. So that's part of where this question is coming from. Who is my neighbor? Because he's got the the stuff that he's memorized kind of qualifies who a neighbor is. Well, it's your brothers. Well, it's the sojourning stranger. Well, who is my neighbor? So there's some legitimacy to his question. But remember his motive. It wasn't just out of curiosity or really trying to understand. It was self-justification. I got to make sure that I get checked off correct. Who is my neighbor? Let's take a look at Jesus' response and counter question. Jesus' response, he tells a story. He tells a story that doesn't answer the lawyer's question. Have you ever seen that? Have you caught that before? Jesus' answer doesn't answer the guy's question at all. Let's take a look at this. First of all, there are four main characters in this parable. There are three people that walk by the beaten man. And each responds to the situation in a neighborly or non-neighborly way. Remember the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? If the man doesn't qualify as a neighbor, the beaten up guy, okay, if he doesn't qualify as a neighbor, then nobody needs to be neighborly to him, right? Who is my neighbor? Well, this guy isn't great. I get to walk on by and I'm good to go. I'm scot-free. So there's these three people that walk by the beaten man, and then there's the man himself. How does Jesus describe him? A man. That's it. That's all we get. There's no detail given about the man. Now, we have reason to assume that the man is Jewish because Jesus is talking to Jews, and there's the shock of the Samaritan helping that wouldn't be as strong if the man wasn't Jewish. But Jesus doesn't even clarify that. In giving no detail about the man, Jesus basically gives his answer to the lawyer's question. Hey, everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is. It's not about the object, but rather about the subject. Remember English class, right? The difference between an object and a subject. The object has the action done to them, and the subject is the one doing the action. So Jesus, in telling the story, is saying that the object doesn't matter. It's about how the subject acts. One commentator said it this way. Love should not be limited by its object. Its extent and quality are in the control of its subject. In other words, neighborly love isn't limited by who the neighbor is. It's limited or extended by you. All right, let's keep going with the parable. Let's look at what the characters do. 
The first two just walk by. Now, they were both a part of Jewish temple leadership. They both had roles in the temple. The priest and the Levite both did. In the same way that Jesus gave no detail about the man, he also gave no detail about why these two passed by without helping. Now, we could speculate. We could say that maybe they were trying to be ceremonial clean and keep themselves clean for the temple. Because uh, in Jewish law, if you touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean, and then you had to go through a process to cleanse yourself. So maybe that's why. Or maybe, according to Veggie Tales, they were busy, busy, dreadfully busy, if you know that reference. I, who knows, right? There, there, there could have been a number of different reasons why um, they didn't stop. But Jesus makes it really clear that they saw the man. It wasn't that they were so busy that they didn't notice him, right? They saw the man. He points that out both times. Then Jesus really flips everything on its head by making the hero of the story a Samaritan. Remember, Samaritans and Jews did not get along at all. And Jesus is talking to a bunch of Jews and makes the hero a Samaritan. It's important to notice first that the Samaritan had compassion, verse 33, on the man. It wasn't, um, his feeling towards the man superseded his feelings towards Jews, assuming the man was a Jew. And he had compassion that then moved him to act. Jesus told of the Samaritan going above and beyond in every way imaginable. He stopped to help in a clearly unsafe area. This path between Jerusalem and Jericho was about 17 miles, and it was extremely uh, downhill. So there were lots of winding pathways and lots of places that robbers could hide. So here he stops in an unsafe spot to get down and help the man. Then he gets down to bandage him, which probably would have not been very sanitary. He then puts him on his own animal, which means that he walked the rest of the way. And then he covered the guy's current and future costs. Two denarii would have covered a month to two months' stay at an inn at that time. But he also left it open-ended, which the innkeeper could have easily taken advantage of. In everything, Jesus shows the Samaritan going above and beyond. Then Jesus asks his counter question, which has a very obvious answer. Jesus wants to make this as obvious as possible. And again, the counter question doesn't answer the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus asks, which proved to be a neighbor to the man? His focus is on the subject, not the object. Which do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Who fell among the robbers? Boy, I'm lobbing it up for you, lawyer. This is about as easy of an answer as I can give you. Look at the lawyer's answer. The one who showed him mercy. And I try to picture how he's saying that. Maybe he's kind of like toe in the ground. The one who showed him mercy. You know, maybe he's like, so incensed towards Samaritans that he can't even say the word Samaritan. This, the one who showed him mercy, right? Like, who knows? But we see Jesus getting at his heart. 
We see it. But regardless, he got the answer right. Whew. And look at Jesus' imperative. He says, you go and do likewise. Just as the you and you shall love the Lord your God is singular, is individual, this you is the same. Hey, you, lawyer, you go and do likewise. It's a singular you. It's not a, hey, everyone listening, you go and do likewise. He's singling him out. Lawyer, you go and do likewise. And then he says, do likewise. And in saying that, Jesus is actually answering the lawyer's first question here. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do likewise. Now, we don't know what happened with the lawyer from here on out. We don't know if he actually went and started loving people, including Samaritans, that way. But Jesus' main objective in engaging the lawyer wasn't to give him a directive, but rather it was to point out the lawyer's failure in the area and show him his need for a savior. Just like Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler in Luke 18, which we'll get to at some point uh, as we go through the book of Luke. But the ruler asks Jesus the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus ultimately points out the ruler's failure. He loves money more than he loves God. Jesus wants to show the ruler his need for a savior. And we see the ruler's reaction, at least his immediate reaction. He goes away sad. But Jesus' imperative goes after the heart. And here it goes after the heart of the lawyer. And in doing so, we get to see the heart of the Savior. Jesus' heart is for us. He desires a deep relationship with us. And so he draws us to himself. But in doing so, he points out where we need to grow, where we need to change. Unless we put ourselves above the priest and the Levite. Consider this. In research done by Darley and Batson at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1973, a group of seminary students were told that they were to go across campus to deliver a sermon on the topic of the Good Samaritan. As part of the research, some of these students were told that they were late and needed to hurry up. Along their route across campus, Darley and Batson had hired an actor to play the role of a victim who was coughing and suffering. 90%, of the late seminary students ignored the needs of the suffering person in their hurry to get across campus. Indeed, the study reports, on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried away. Boy, would I hate to be one of those people (laughs) in this study. Hey, do you realize what you just did? Oh, no. It's easy to read this parable and look down at the lawyer or look down at the priest and the Levite. But we can all fall in this area. It's so easy to get so focused on what we're doing that we don't lift our eyes to see the needs right in front of us. There are a couple times this week where I almost tried to get out of a meeting with someone because I wanted to come and work on this a little bit more. And then I had to stop and go, hold on. 
Ben, see what you're doing here. And I had to remind myself, no, no, no. It's time for me to be present. I wasn't following Jesus' imperative to do as the Samaritan did. So I dropped what I was working on and I engaged. The heart of the Savior is for relationship with us. It is to be with us. But he wants us to be growing in our relationship with him, to be living the life that he has for us. So Jesus' imperative to the lawyer is not just for him, it's for us too. Jesus calls the lawyer to two things, a change of actions and a change of attitude. And his heart is the same for us. A change of actions. When Jesus says, go and do likewise, the lawyer's actions will need to change for him to follow through. His idea of a neighbor, of what a neighbor is, was very different. Now, yes, Jesus is going after the heart of the lawyer, but he was also teaching about how to be a neighbor. And so we need to pay attention to that instruction. As I read this, I see myself in the lawyer trying to justify my actions. I see myself in the priest and the Levite hurrying by. Jesus challenges the lawyer to change his actions. He is challenging me to do the same. He's challenging you to do the same. Just yesterday in my quiet time, I was reading in Ephesians 4, and I had to read the first few verses to you. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are called to live right, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So let me ask you, what is one way you're going to change your actions based on the parable of the Good Samaritan? So we have a change of actions, but we also have a change of attitude. And the change is humility. The lawyer wanted to test Jesus, remember? I know the law really well, so I'm going to see what this Jesus guy knows. I'm living the way that I should be. So let's be sure I'm loving the right people so that I can tell others how well I'm doing. Let's make sure I've got this right idea of what a neighbor is, and I'm going to tell people, look, I'm loving all of those people. But in pointing out the lawyer's errors, Jesus brings him to a point of humility. When Jesus says, go and do likewise, he's challenging the lawyer to change his attitude. His attitude towards Samaritans. His attitude towards people in general. His attitude even towards himself. Laying down his pride and humbling himself before Jesus. And Jesus is challenging us to do the same. What is one way you're going to change your attitude? based on this parable. Now, it's important to remember that we cannot make any changes on our own. We need Jesus. Staying in Ephesians, going back a few verses, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... 
He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, that's his power, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the attitude we need to run after. That the glory goes back to him and not us. Let me invite the band up. The ultimate thing that we need to walk away with is an understanding that we need Jesus. And communion is a great reminder of that. Jesus is after our hearts. And to restore our relationship with him, He gave his life on the cross. Without Jesus' sacrifice, we are lost. Without his presence in our lives, we are doomed to fail, to put ourselves on the throne. We need Jesus. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And you're welcome to come up and take communion whenever you're ready during the next couple of songs. Just tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice and take it. Now this is for anyone that calls Jesus their Lord and Savior. But before you come, I'd ask you to prepare your heart. Use some time to focus on how you need Jesus. And when you're ready, Take, according to the scripture. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me, as often as you drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.